0: Good day and welcome back. It's Thursday, 13th of June, 1946. In this episode, we learn more details about the fascinating road trip to Nanking and Qinqiang. As we join Bette, she's on her return journey waiting in the city of Wuhu beside the Yangtze River, hoping to flag down a passing LST to take her home. The LSTs that she refers to are the military designation for landing ship tank. Less than a year ago, these vessels were carrying and disgorging troops, heavy equipment and tanks across the beaches of Pacific Islands as the war ground its way to conclusion. These vessels are now being rushed into urgent relief services throughout China
1: and elsewhere. Mrs. Betty Suta, Unra, 370 North Suchau Road, Shanghai, 13th of June, 46. Written from Unra Regional Office, Wuhu An Wei. Hello there. I do seem to get around. Since last Friday, I have covered Chinese territory as follows. 121 miles by Jeep to Q from Nanchang. 400 miles by river steamer down the Yangtze from Kyuchang to Wuhu. 61 miles by jeep to Nanking. 56 miles by train from Nanking to Qinkiang. 56 miles again by train from Qinkiang back to Nanking. 61 miles again back from Nanking to Wuhu by jeep. And here we are, Thursday, waiting for something to turn up To get us back home again to Nanchang. We hope to get on some sort of a boat today. And you can take it from me that we do not travel the easy way. Roads are all bad at the best of times, but our huge Norwegian, Tiny, who has done most of the jeep driving, maintains that you feel the bumps less if you bounce right over the top of them. And so we average 30 miles per hour. No. I have no broken limbs, but I consider I am lucky to still be alive. And to get aboard our ship, we had to cross to midstream in a bucking sampan. nearly got caught under the propeller of the ship, which was all set to get underway, anchors up and all, and clamber up the swaying rope ladder to get aboard, with the dirty Yangtze swirling below, to be greeted with the information they were glad to carry us, But there was no sleeping accommodation and no food for us for the two-day trip. As the female of the party, I was detailed off to wangle the food position, which I did, and I also got a camp stretcher from the captain for myself and manoeuvred for the two men to sleep on the couches in the captain's quarters. Even the train journey meant a free fight to get on board, but our six-foot-four tiny made it comparatively easy. Yes, it's a lot of fun travelling in China. We anticipated difficulties, of course, and have travelled with very little kit. I was in the same mud-besplattered shirt for three days. Tiny is too tall for the jeep, so he has to travel with the hood and the windshield down. From wu to Nanking, we had the hot sun beating down all the time and I have developed a very worthy tan. But it had been raining the night before, and the roads were all mud-covered, and I caught everything that the front wheel turned up. From the peak of my forage cap, which is beginning to show the scars of battle, down to my very ankles, I had spots of dirty china mud, the good earth but they dried off in the sun and did not show much on my tan face and arms or the good old khaki drill. But that is the way to see China. A perfect, unobstructed view of the hills and paddy fields, Lovely, fertile country. Tiny's hood problems led us into driving rain on the return journey from Nanking to Wuhu, and all of us were soaked through on arrival here. But Tiny thinks it all a huge joke and lets out a hearty guffaw every now and again. He's the true Viking type, soldier of fortune and all that. An intriguing personality, gruff, boisterous, fiery-tempered, but gentle as a lamb with animals, insects and flowers. As you probably know, Nanking is again the capital of China. The central government moved back there several weeks ago. Unfortunately, we did not stay long enough to see much of it and Tiny averaged 50 on the good roads within the city, so he had to look fast to see anything at all. But it seems to me that Nanking has the makings of a very lovely city, with wide, tree-lined streets, good shops, set out in straight frontage lines, most unusual in Chinese cities, and a lovely setting in the hills with the Yangtze River flowing by. They have many very fine buildings, and there was, happily, little war damage there. I believe the city was evacuated and left open to the invading Japs, so that the damage would be kept to a minimum. The main government building would be a credit to any city. There again, it was raining, and I will have no photographs to support my rather poor descriptions. The city wall of Nanking is most picturesque. Having no idea of measurements and distances, I have already stated that it is 30 feet high. That was a gross understatement. Although in parts where the natural ground undulations permit, it does not exceed that height. But I am now informed that at the main gate entrances in the north and east, the wall is even more than 75 feet high and that the average thickness is 25 feet. It sure is a solid piece of construction whatever the dimensions. It surrounds the city proper, being about 25 miles long, and has been standing there for over a thousand years. In the good old days, I would say that it afforded complete protection for the city. Nowadays, of course, the bandits are well-equipped with heavy artillery instead of the bows and arrows, or Chinese equivalent. I was disappointed at not seeing the Sun Yat-sen Memorial. It is the one thing in Nanking that every visitor just has to see, like our bridge, but we did not see it. I must go back there one day for that specific purpose. One of my biggest pleasures on the trip was to walk into Nanking office and find my old friend Bill Taylor sitting on a desk swinging his legs in his customary manner. You will remember that he was one of my two travelling companions to Shanghai from Sydney. I was not expecting to see him, but I did expect to see my other travelling companion, Harry Bishop. But we missed each other only by several days. However, we have to expect that to happen in China. No one knows exactly where he or she will be from one day to the next. There were two other Australians in the Nanking office... Dr. Wells and Amy Lang. It is always a joy to come across them. This province of Anhui is the biggest rice exporting province in China. I have not seen yet any uncultivated land within it. It certainly does look healthy and makes me wonder where all the money gets to, because I become more and more convinced as I move around that there is, in fact, plenty of money in this country. There is poverty and starvation too, a lot of it, but there has always been much of that and it seems that there always will be. Nevertheless, we are getting their buildings and factories up again for them, helping with better agricultural methods, enforcing down their throats the need for sanitation and health measures, etc. It is a hard, long job and we will be lucky if we can convert even a small number of them over to cleaner ways of living. You may wonder where we sleep when tripping around the country like this. We always try to arrange to be at a city which has an Unruh office when night falls. So far, I've always achieved this. The UNRWA people always have their own quarters, or are living at one of the missions. All the quarters that I have seen to date are quite comfortable, though not lavish. A spare bunk is always available for transients. En route, we do the best we can. As I have mentioned, the captain gave me a stretcher on the deck of the ship. It was only a small cargo ship with no accommodations at all, though we were quite prepared to curl up in a rug on the hatches for the night. Something always seems to turn up. I like the mission house in Xinjiang, it was on the high side of the city, built into the side of a steep hill from which there was a perfect view of the whole surrounding district. One of its chief benefits was the breeze that came in off the river. In this hot, humid, sticky climate, we chase after every breath of wind that there is, and Xinjiang has plenty. Most of the mission houses were taken over by the Japs, of course, and they are only just getting back into shape again. The Jap habits must have been positively filthy. Here in Woohoo, the girls live at the Methodist Mission Hospital. According to our standards, the hospitals here are positively unhygienic. I failed to find the reason for it. At the present time, I know they are understaffed and badly equipped, but... I still maintain that cleanliness can be achieved without staff or equipment, even if it means limiting the numbers of patients still further. I would not like to have to go to hospital in China. But the quarters in which the girls live are very nice. They are the European nurses' quarters. I have been staying in the home of the Chinese hospital superintendent, but eating with the girls at their quarters. Nevertheless, I would not like to be stationed at the WUHU office. I am now itching to get out of here and back to Nanchang. It is a good idea to meet and talk with other Unruh people in different regional offices and to get their ideas. This trip of mine was not altogether a pleasure jaunt. It was to represent our region at a conference between the three adjoining regions with the idea of coordinating our efforts to get the maximum benefit from our joint resources particularly in the matter of transportation, which is so very scarce. The conference proved to be most successful. My train ride from Nanking was quite an event. It was the first time I had seen a train at all in China. Most of the railways were torn up by the Japs the rails being used in other areas of conquest where they wanted railways to carry away their plunder. And believe me, it is a very good train, quite modern, with all conveniences. It runs to Shanghai and back from Nanking each day. It has four different classes, but I would hate to travel in anything but the first. On the return journey to Nanking, Tiny wanted an early start, so he took the earlier train, Fourth class train only, and I believe he had a terrific trip. He would not tell me the details, but it must have been bad for Tiny to be so utterly disgusted. The fourth class carriages are just open cattle trucks. In our own region of Si, we have no communist problems at all. Eight years ago, the communists made havoc in some of our districts, and once under control, the residents decided that it would never happen again, and stringent measures were adopted. As soon as a communist pops up, he's very soundly knocked on the head and has to pop down again. I had not, therefore, realised the difficulties that others had to contend with. Ch'in Kiang is just bristling with firearms. At the crossroads, instead of having policemen, they have two or three soldiers with fixed bayonets. In the early morning, you see the army out on the march, keeping in perfect trim, or, I should say, in as good trim as the Chinese army ever is. They are a motley and apparently disorganised crew. And at night, there is a curfew. Anyone found on the streets after midnight is arrested and promptly charged with communist activities. Actually, the communists are camped in large numbers just over the other side of the river from Qin and the townspeople are expecting an attack at any time. The air is quite tense, and it gives you a jolt to come across a batch of soldiers every here and there with those wretched bayonets at the ready and grim looks on their faces. Unra, being unconcerned with politics and avoiding discrimination on such grounds, is fighting hard to get relief supplies through the Communist territory. Personnel can move in quite freely, but the Nationalist Guards confiscate any Communist-bound goods that they can lay their hands on. It makes the work difficult and creates quite a deal of trouble with the Chinese government. Harry Bishop was one of a party who recently crossed the river into the Communist camp to inspect the works there and try to arrange for supplies to be brought in by different routes. I am waiting to see his report, which should be most interesting. His fellows at Xinjiang told me, however, that Harry found that the Communists had done more there in their area than the Nationalists had done in theirs towards repairing the dikes and the river embankment, the roads, bridges, and airfields, and all. Of course, without any assistance from the government, and very little from UNRWA. It is a queer setup. You would think that China had had enough scrapping for a while. They have some trouble here too, but not to such an extent. Although there's been no trouble recently, the people here are often molested by tigers. I thought that Africa and India were tiger countries, and I was quite surprised to find that they have hordes of man-eaters not too many miles from where I am sitting right at this very moment. China has got everything. About 12 months ago, 15 people were mauled and killed in the outskirts of this town. Nice thought, yes? I think I would rather go home to Nanchang. I am realising, at last, that it is quite a quiet, dignified and respectable town. I have just been greeted with the pleasant news that the US dollar has now gone up to 2,500 Chinese dollars. When I arrived in Shanghai, it was only 1,750. Chinese currency sure is one big laugh. I have been using my briefcase for small change. Now I will have to resort to my overnight bag, and then I can always fall back on the duffel bag. And the silly part of it is that the bank still issues five and ten dollar bills, but nothing higher than two thousand dollars. You can imagine the paper that is turned over when you pay out a hundred thousand Chinese dollars for a steamer ticket or such like. The cost of running our regional office, including monthly allotments taken out by the staff, is over five million Chinese dollars per month. Payday for the cashier at the Chinese office is just one big headache, as you can imagine. There are 500 and 600 regular employees in that office and always 300 to 400 transients between the provinces who are entitled to collect their subsistence and allotments there too. The cashier's room looks like the money vaults of the Commonwealth Bank and then some. (music) many times to mention the Chinese police out in the regional cities. At every intersection, there is a traffic policeman on point duty all day long. In Nanchang, we must have 50 or 75 such street intersections, each with its COP. Our traffic consists of four 400 jeeps, one Sinra jeep, 20 Sinra trucks, which always move in a convoy directly between Nanchang and Quchang, The post office bus, which comes straight into the city and straight out again, three times in the week, and the public bus, which comes in and out again once a week. Now, tell me, do you really think we have enough policemen to cope with all that traffic? Similar proportions exist in every other city that I have been in, except of course for Shanghai, where no one takes any notice of the policemen anyway. They just knock them over if they're in the way the police do not even try to control the rickshaws. They just dart wherever they please, right under the policemen's noses. This morning, I got caught up in a military parade. They were quite the best-dressed and nicest-looking young soldiers I have seen in China. I found out that they were part of the Youth Corps, boys of 16 to 20 years, taken mostly out of high schools. I was really quite impressed... They were being shipped to Nanking for discharge. There must have been 700 of them. In the usual way, the population came out to watch them pass and the firecrackers were crackling all over the place. Instead of a band, each section of the boys took it in turn to sing and it sounded fine. They were putting everything they had into it and it was a grand marching song with a good swing to it. Reverting to rickshaws for a moment, I must tell you that I have seen it happen at last. I just knew it had to happen sometime. Two coolies got into an argument about right of way, I guess. Each had a passenger in his rickshaw. Words were loud and fierce and faces contorted in anger and tempers at high pitch. Fisticuffs were the only solution, so hang the passengers and... Up went the shafts and back went the rickshaws and passengers therewith. Gosh, but it looked funny. And there were two coolies having a ding-dong go. And up scrambled the passengers and joined into the fray too, each one apparently out for blood of his coolie responsible for such an indignity. So much for now. Must get along to the shipping wharf and see what's doing. Maybe an LST early this afternoon. I hope so. Cheerio. Much love, Bet. 20 June. Back in Nanchang. We'll write details of return soon. I'm still luxuriating in the stack of mail that was waiting for me. Mars. I have a note from Ant. It has taken more than a month to be delivered here from Shanghai, and he has probably left there by now. However, I'm writing to him. I guess I will not be seeing him. Lots of love, Bet. P.S. A certain amount of repetition after the letter to mother, but a few additional bits and pieces.
0: Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry, voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn, and the featured tune from 1946, I'm Always Chasing Rainbows, from the 20th Century Fox movie The Dolly Sisters performed by Perry Como and The Satisfiers with Russ Case and his orchestra.
2: At the end of the rainbow There's happiness And to find it how often I've tried But my life is a race just a wild goose chase, and my dreams have all been denied. Why have I always been a failure? What can the reason be? I wonder if the world's to blame. I wonder if it could be me I'm always chasing rainbows, watching Just like all of my dreams Ending in the sky Some fellas look and find the sunshine I always look and find the rain Some fellas make a winning sometime I never even make a game